Good morning, Cornerstone Bible Church. It's truly a privilege to be able to be with you this morning and open the word. Um, I've had the opportunity, um, even during this time, to meet so many of you, uh, and it's been very overwhelming, uh, even just being able to sing together in the, in the church, the uh, six or seven of us who are here. Uh, it is a great privilege, um, and to know uh, that our church is present spiritually and is around, uh, just not on a Sunday morning as we would hope, um, but as I've got to know uh, so many of you so far, uh, it really has been my privilege to be able to uh, be at this church uh, so little as I have already. Um, but with that, if you have your Bibles, uh, please open them to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 11, very first book of your Bible, Genesis chapter 11. We're going to start uh, by reading the text first, uh, and then we'll get into it. Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the road less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. I hope you don't dislike poetry. I debated reading the entirety of that poem to you and decided not to, because it's usually only the last three lines that people really know. Poetry can be very, very helpful to understand certain truths in a new format, in a beautiful way to reorient our brain to things that we might already know. And this poem, specifically these last three lines, are no different. It's from a larger poem called The Road Not Taken by Robert Frost. And many, many people, from disillusioned college students to pseudo-intellectuals, and of course many other very good-meaning people, uh, have taken this poem to be an encouragement to forge new trails and boldly go where nobody has gone before and experience the joys of life that supposedly come with independence and independent thinking. Choosing the road less taken, going your own way, deciding to go against the curve and receiving the benefits of individuality and courage. 
Ironically, Robert Frost, who wrote the poem, didn't necessarily intend it for any of those reasons. He actually wrote it as one beautifully crafted, sarcastic joke to a good friend of his, Edward Thomas. Thomas, very now famously as a result of this poem, was an indecisive man. And on many different occasions, Robert Frost used to bug him and berate him for his indecisiveness. He would tell him to just pick a road. They're all the same, and it doesn't make much of a difference. Frost's courageous demeanor tend to work very heavily on Thomas as the years go by, and many different incidents proved that. One such incident was running into a gamekeeper who told them to get off of the land they were on, Thomas removing Frost from almost getting into a fistfight with the man, though unsuccessfully. Only a couple hours later after this incident, Frost found the man's home and began to interact with him again. Fortunately, a second time, Thomas interceded uh, as a shotgun was pointed at the face of Robert Frost for his courage. Now, I don't know if you think that was courageous or not, but nonetheless, situations like this began to weigh on Thomas's own brain as to how he would choose different roads and why he would choose a particular road in front of him. And so it was around 1915 when Robert Frost was given, uh, gave this poem rather to his friend Edward Thomas and it began to weigh more heavily on Thomas than Frost originally intended. And as Thomas looked at the various roads that were in front of him, he decided the road that he thought he needed to take and prove this courage that he didn't know he had was to enlist in World War I. And tragically, in April 9th, 1917, in France, during, during the Battle of Arras, he was shot and killed. And thus, this poem was the unintended interruption into the otherwise very calm and relaxed life of Edward Thomas. Interruptions are inevitable. And as we consider this, consider the interruptions in your life that have made you the kind of person that you are. What have they revealed to you? What has the loss of a friend or a loved one or a family member revealed to you about the brevity of life and how you were going to live yours? What is our current status and potentially fear of the coming coronavirus changed your mind about health and security and comfort? And more importantly, what have interruptions like this changed the way that you have thought through what road you're on and specifically why you're on the road you're on. And to help bring a bit of light into that situation, when we look at Genesis 11 today, I want to consider and help us together consider from the word of God how all of us got on the road that we are on now. It starts in Genesis chapter 1, all the way to Genesis chapter two, in which God creates the world. He creates the oceans and the skies and the stars, and it is all very good because it is made by a good creator and reflects his goodness. And finally, the pinnacle of that creation is mankind. And mankind is the pinnacle of that creation because he's made in the image of God. And God creates him not only to glorify himself, but to create creatures who reflect his glory and his goodness and to spread them to 
let them exercise dominion over the world and therefore reflect the goodness and the glory and power and might of God. But this narrative, as we know, is interrupted by sin, the serpent tempting Eve and her husband Adam, who willingly give into the idea that sin might be a better road than the road that God has them on, and thus begins the complete unmaking of creation, not in a physical sense, but in a relational sense. God and man can no longer dwell together because a holy God can no longer live with creatures who are sinful, and therefore two roads divulge. One leads to sin and death in which mankind, just doing as they do and living in the sin that they have chosen and desire, will push themselves to the brink of annihilation and be separated from God forever. But the second road, the road revealed in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, reveals that God is going to make another way. God is going to provide a way in which his creatures can relate to him once again. And as they progress, he gives them the promise that he will crush the head of the serpent, that he will destroy sin and death if his people would trust him and be faithful to him. And the problem is they did not. In the opening chapters of Genesis, we see sin wreak bigger and greater havoc upon the world. Cain murders his brother Abel. God destroys almost the entire human population in one single monstrous flood. And the pattern of the world following this sin is that mankind wishes to be on the road of wickedness and sin. And the climactic conclusion of this introduction of the world narrative, this, as the Israelites called it, the primeval history, is the Tower of Babel incident. This small narrative is interjected between two genealogies, proof that mankind is growing after the flood. The genealogy of Noah and his son Shem is expanding and expanding and finally meets in this one giantly important narrative crushed into nine verses showing man's desire to be together, man's desire to sin, and God's interruption of that, spreading the people abroad. And many people, if you read Wikipedia, think that the only reason that this narrative is in here is just to tell you that this is the reason we have different nations and this is the reason we have different languages. But the problem is that this isn't just a narrative only, it's a discourse. God arranged it specifically to present to us something unique, which is not just what the people did and what God did, but what the people were thinking and intended and what God was thinking and intended when he interrupted their plans. So because of that, the easiest way, and I think maybe the most helpful way to look at this narrative is to look through the story together from two different conceptions, from two different intentions, and that is what man intended to do and what God intended to do. And the importance of this format is not just so we know what road man eventually took, but the reasons that they chose that road and the reasons God stopped them on that road. And so because of that, if you like taking notes, the proposition for our message today is that the Tower of Babel account provides two competing intentions of the chief end of man 
so that we might direct our steps in accordance with God's will. It provides two competing intentions of the chief end of man so that we might direct our steps in accordance with God's will. And so we're going to look at both of those intentions. And the first of those intentions is the intentions of man. The intentions of man. Now in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 to 3, the setup is, is very easy for us to see how this plan of a city came together. There's, in verse 1, a common vocabulary and vernacular. They not only spoke the same language, but they even had the same slang. Communication, the gift of language God gave to man, is bringing the people together. And in verse 2, those people use that to come together with apparently no problems. They're in a plane together, they settle together, and they come to all of these decisions corporately. And finally, in verse 3, they don't only use the language to come together as one people group, but they use the ingenuity and the technology that they are developing as this world is beginning before our very eyes in Genesis to put brick and mortar together, to create a solidified structure and create something that is going to improve their circumstances. And in these first three verses, everything seems very innocent. They're building a city. What seems to be the problem with building cities? And the problem really isn't in what they're doing, but the intentions of why they're doing it. And that becomes a lot clearer if you understand the brief context of Genesis just before us. Both in the creation of the garden and in the restarting of the world after the flood with Noah, in Genesis chapter 1, verses 28, and Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 and 7, God commanded the people to be fruitful and multiply. To be fruitful and multiply. And this is essential to the entire scope of what is happening in Babel. Because God is commanding his image, the image that is upon mankind to go out in the earth and transmute and spread his presence and glory. And it's important to know that because they completely reject this. Instead, if we relook at verses one, two, and three, mankind looks around this plane and doesn't want to walk around anymore and doesn't want to separate. And so they strategically develop plans in verse three to deny the command that God has upon them. Now, some people assume that the reason for this is for security. If you're out in a plane, it's very easy to be attacked by either other tribes or other uh, problems or animals or whatnot. There's a problem for two reasons. One is, even though it's not necessarily a bad theory, this is all of the people coming together. It doesn't seem that there's other warring tribes or particular dilemmas. They are a large group of people, and a large group of people can do a large amount of damage. And the other reason, even though it's not a bad theory, and it does seem to have an interesting application to the ability to trust God in your circumstances, verse 4 very directly tells us why the people decided to come together. Verse 4 says, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. In that one sentence, specifically, 
Let us make a name for ourselves. We see that the intention of the people coming together is nothing less than corporate worship. It's not security, it's worship. And the entire city that they're constructing is around this very idea. If you listen to archeologists talk about the Tower of Babel, they'll usually compare it to a kind of structure called a ziggurat. It's very simple to, uh, similar rather to a big temple in which steps go up to a central location that the entire city can see and therefore partake in some corporate worship service of some kind. And even though the particular ziggurat idea isn't mentioned, it's helpful to make us think away from the idea that this city or this tower looks something like the Tower of Pisa. It has something more specific in mind than just beauty or noticeability. The idea of the ziggurat helps us think that this idea of worship is in the very construction of the city itself. And the clearest indication of that is not only the mention of a tower, this pinnacle in the middle of the city, but its description, that it will be a tower with its tops in the heavens. I think I can speak for all of us when we say that the literal nature of this reality, that a tower that can literally reach the top of heaven seems ridiculous. And there's a sense where it is. If you look at that kind of sentence structure in the rest of the Bible, you'll see that even God himself uses that metaphor in a very particular way. In Deuteronomy chapter nine, verses one, it says, hear, O Israel, you are about to cross the Jordan and go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you. And how do we know that these are nations that are bigger and stronger than the Israelites? Well, it says that they will have large cities that have walls up to the sky. Hebrew, the literal translation of that is fortified up to heaven. This description isn't about this kind of ability to compete with God's power, but simply a description of wanting to compete with his might and power from an earthly point of view. Saying the tower will reach the heavens is this grand revelation of their ego. It reveals the early sin of mankind corporately. No one being excluded from it is a trivial self comparison with God himself based on these efforts. Perhaps you've heard the phrase, sin makes you stupid, but it also makes you bold and it makes you confident in the wrong things and it makes you think and feel more like God than you really are. It was interesting reading this week about a farmer in 1974 who while he was digging a well in China, accidentally unearthed one of the greatest archeological discoveries of the 20th century. It was a tomb, one of the largest tombs ever constructed by one of the first emperors of China and forgive me if I say his name wrong, Qing Shi Huangdi, who supposedly lived from 246 to 210 BCE. To give you a frame of reference, that's somewhere around 100 to 150 years after the last Old Testament book was written, Malachi. This tomb was not only large, it took roughly, they guesstimated, around three decades to build, but it was filled with ornate furniture and designs on the ceiling and beautiful jewelry and, of course, what everybody knows it for, which is 10,000 terracotta warriors 
each designed and crafted by hand. And even their individual faces were based on real people and therefore no two were identical. But what was the reason that this tomb was constructed on such a mass and beautiful scale? Well, truly the reason is because the emperor himself was foolishly fearful that when he died, he would have to compete with others in the afterlife. And therefore not only created this tribute to himself, but also a giant army to help him conquer the afterlife. And the true real reason was he was confident that he had become the god of this world and wanted to become supposedly the god of the next world. One article author writes it this way. The answer lies in nothing less than a struggle for mastery, not only over death, but over the world and indeed the whole universe. And for the first emperor, this meant becoming a god and acting accordingly. The first supreme ruler of China pursued both immortality and personal deity with an unequaled single-minded passion and his terracotta army speaks to that hubris. Mankind has been given an amazing ability to create, and that was given from God. And the problem with sin at its fundamental core is that the prideful human heart desires to be like God. And if you think that that illustration is too grandiose, that it seems too ridiculous to just look at one emperor who thought himself as God, remember the context of Genesis, specifically Genesis chapter 3 when Eve is confronted by the serpent and tells the serpent they're not allowed to eat from the tree of good and evil or they will die. In Genesis 3 verse 4, what does the serpent say? He says, surely you will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And nothing has changed in Genesis chapter 11. Everyone falls from the same problem as Adam and Eve. And this is what God means when he interrupts this narrative with his own understanding of the situation in verse 6 where he says, Behold, they are one people and they have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose will be impossible for them. The ability of mankind to sin and for every single one of us to sin is unfathomable. And sin is worse when man abuses the image of God upon them and begins to create things not for God, but for themselves believing their God. And so the key question we have to ask is, in this pursuit of deification, of corporate worship of themselves, does that mean that these plans that they have could truly interfere with the plan that we know God has from Genesis chapter 3.15? Well, the answer is no. And it's also found in that idea of this metaphor of being to the tops of the heavens. God actually uses it in another area through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 51.53 when he says this, though Babylon should mount up to the heavens. And though she should fortify her strong height, fortify being the same verb that's used in Deuteronomy 9.1, 
Yet destroyers would come out from me against her, declares the Lord. It's interesting that many people think that Babylon is the great, great, great grandson of Babel. And with Babylon, just as with Babel, God is very clear in his intention of interruption, which is that nobody is competing with the intentions of God. Consider for a moment the original audience this was written to. Consider the Israelites sitting in the middle of the desert with Moses, their leader, considering entrance into the promised land. Scouts may have been back at this time already, including Joshua and Caleb, telling the people that there are people in there bigger and stronger than them. And Moses begins to reiterate to them the beginnings of mankind. And he tells them the story of Babel. And in such a small narrative, they would get just a taste of the fact that no nations can compete with the Israelites because no other nations have the true God. And I think this is important to remember because I think if we were there, and I think if this city project wasn't interrupted and we could actually witness it from the beginning, there's a strong possibility that we would have been very impressed by its construction. Even a construction from so early in the beginning of time would have been wondrous and marvelous and massive and impressive. I think we know that because we've heard of far less superior and much more inferior constructions that we've seen in this world that are impressive. Consider for a moment the construction in God's mind. Man can't make the great can the Grand Canyon, and man can't create the picturesque skyline that you see in the northern lights if you go north. And man can't create the kind of depth that's discoverable only thousands and thousands of years after God created it in the Marianas Trench. And man can't create a human being, not in the sense that they could form it from the womb and inform its intentions and inform its path with no interruptions and create a way in which everything that they would design for this child would come about in exactly the way that they determined it. God is sovereign in all of his intentions, and the Israelites, upon hearing this story, should be able to see how man's natural plans of construction are not only against the will of God, but will naturally be thwarted by God either in his direct intervention, as we see in so much of the Old Testament, or in their eventual judgment and destruction. And so as we consider the intentions of man in in constructing this massive city and tower for self-worship, it's important for us to consider why we should have such a hatred and frustration of sin. Because we know what it's capable of, And we know that when it manifests, it brings out the worst in creation. And if our community is going to be sustained, then we can't miss the key warnings that are present in this text. We can't miss disobeying the directives of God at any point that we can because they only lead to trouble. 
And it's clear that only under uniting, not for our creative skill or for our personalities or because of our cultural milieu, the only reason we come together is because we're under the banner of God. And we know that that's the only place that true victory can actually be had. Not only true victory, but lasting unity. A unity that doesn't just say that we're together because we speak the same language, but we come together because through reconciliation of Christ through the Father, we're not only comrades, but we're sinners saved by God and now children of God. And so with this, we consider the intentions of man. And so now let's go to the other side of the table and consider the intentions of God. The intentions of God. And the intentions of God are very clear in the fact that he interrupts this narrative in verse five. It says the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Now naturally, and just to address it briefly, Many people have a problem with this text that it seems that God is limited in a geographical sense and that the only reason that he could intervene is because he happened to come down from heaven. But again, just like the tower reaching its tops in the heavens, we know that's not the case. And if you track with the idea that we've already brought out of the foolishness of this project, you can see that this is actually a very ironic twist on how God is interrupting this narrative. These people are building a tower to heaven, and they fall so far short that God needs to come down from heaven to even see it. It's an amazingly ironic introduction of God and how ridiculous these schemes of man seem to be, but still, though he's clearly not threatened, it is interesting that he comes down at all. Consider what we learn from that revelation, the fact that God shows up. The fact that God is taking the time to respond to man's actions. This is the critical mass breaking point of the text. The consideration that man is corporately coming together and sin has grown and matured in this corporate unified gathering. And the opportunity for them to sin and continue on this road away from a relationship with God is more and more potentially a reality. And so what is going to happen? Well, in verse six, since God sees the capacity for evil, and in verse five, he came down to investigate this decision, he's going to intervene. And the question is, why does he intervene? Well, at least initially, there's two reasons. And two of those reasons are very interesting because they're very, very dramatic reversals upon how the story of Babel narrative has been constructed. The first is clear that we should know as believers, which is that God's name alone is to be worshiped. Consider some of these verses that talk about the name of God being worthy of praise. Psalm 148.13 says, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted, and his glory is above earth and heaven. Psalm 145.21, My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. Isaiah 42 verse 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I give to no other. 
Psalm 148.5 says, let them praise the name of the Lord for he commanded and they were created. And Psalm 8 verses 1 and verse 9 begin and end with saying, how majestic is your name in all the earth. There's a link between being created and praising the creator. And scripture brings it out so clearly that our very creatureliness demands it. Man doesn't do anything for God. Man doesn't compare to God. And so a dramatic act of stealing that worship would be a passive allowance at this point of God saying creation is allowed to praise their own name. And so in such an initial stage of the beginnings of humankind, God very dramatically interrupts them so that we would know this. And the second reason is the fact that God is going to establish a base for worship, a headquarters of praise himself and for himself. He's going to create a base for worship himself and for himself. Consider Psalm 48 verses 1 to 3. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king, within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. And later in that same psalm, in verses 12 and 14, it says this, walk around Zion, go around her, Number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. And he will guide us forever. In the entire canon of scripture, God is working humankind toward this beautiful reconciliation. And that reconciliation will be based upon his name and this base will be created by himself. And so in his interruption, he sees that this dramatic violation cannot go tolerated by God because the Tower of Babel story is a wretched reversal of both of these realities. And it is abhorrently too close to the glorious construction that God has reserved for himself alone. And so for us, it should be obvious why God does what he does. But still, I I think it's worth noticing not only why God does this, but how he does it. Because he could have interrupted this narrative in many ways. There's no reason to think that in God's supremacy and power, he didn't have a massive karate chop, chopping the city into 16 different pieces and the people scattering that way. Or he could have simply brought down fire, consuming people similar to the flood narrative we saw only a number of chapters before and letting a small remnant go away, but he doesn't do that. The means by which he interrupts is confusing their language. The same means, ironically, by which they came together, he reversed and used as the means by which they could no longer continue this project. And the result of this, of course, is that they can't continue this work anymore. 
It is a total and complete dispersal. And that's important too, because in the effort of God being fruitful and multiplying the people and letting them spread over the face of all the earth, the text is very clear that they went throughout all the earth. Dispersal is mentioned twice, and he makes a point of saying the long constructed sentence. They were dispersed over all the earth, over all the earth, over all the earth. So the conclusion of this narrative is very clear that there aren't gonna be any reunions here. They are very, very separated and they are now very, very verbally challenged in being able to communicate with each other ever again. And if this is the case, there's a question for us knowing the entire canonical idea of salvific history. If God really is making a place for himself, and he is establishing praise of his worshipers for himself, how does that work when God disperses the peoples of the nations and disperses their language so early in the construction of humankind? How on earth is God ever gonna bring these people together again? And amazingly, we get a taste of that in the establishment of the church after the death of Christ and the remaining community sees him resurrected and has that final and beautiful confirmation of the success of God's mission to save mankind and for Christ to be this perfect substitute. They come together to pray for the proclamation of the word and the sustainment of this church that God has begun building. And it says in Acts chapter two, verses six to 12, the multitude came together and they were bewildered. This is after tongues of fire have fallen upon them. And verse six says, they each were hearing each other speak in their own language. And it continues that they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, which by the way was the consequential kingdom of Shinar, the place where Babel is being constructed. But there are more people than just that, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. And we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Well, what it means is that the curse of Babel is being reversed and that a demonstration is taking place from God to the establishment of the first establishment of the church that God is going to keep his promise. And that nothing, no plans, even the original devising of mankind to worship themselves, nothing will get in the way of God establishing his grace upon his people. And that's the third an especially important reason why we need to understand why God intervened here. 
Because if you go from Acts chapter two, back to Genesis 11 and back to this Tower of Babel narrative, you can see that God understands the serious danger that man presents to themselves in being reconciled with God through their sin. And so God intervenes. And what does that demonstrate? Well, it demonstrates a pattern that God is establishing to his people, even in the very beginning establishment of mankind, that he will demonstrate just as he did when he warned, when he warned Cain of the dangers of sin at his door, and just as he did when he saved Noah and his family from the flood, and just as he did in the chapter after this one, when he takes a nameless pagan named Abram and pours out his blessing on him. It demonstrates that God intervenes to benefit the affairs of mankind. That his plan is not for empty and dictatorial worship, but for loving and thankful worship to a God who has blessed mankind immeasurably more than we deserve. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Psalm chapter eight, verses three to six. God gave man the ability and the authority to be fruitful and multiply as an extension of his grace to them. That he would bestow a particular honor upon mankind to be aware of him and to know him and to be reconciled with him even in the midst of such absolutely abhorrent schemes against him. God is so much greater when we recognize the kinds of honor that his lordship and his leadership and his sovereign control over us provides for us. And it's reasons like that that we can actually sing and be thankful for the ways that God sovereignly intervenes in our lives. But we, because we can trust that he is a good and gracious king who works all things for good according to the wondrous workings of his purpose for those who are reunited with him. And it's amazing to see a continuation of this very idea in the next chapter with that nameless pagan Abram, when it goes from all peoples to a divided peoples to a particular person. God comes to this seemingly nameless idolater who was not looking for God and was not aware of God and was busy worshiping other gods and preparing for his family and probably farming and surviving and doing all those kinds of normal things. And suddenly there's God. And in Genesis chapter two, chapter 12, verse two, he says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, 
and all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. God intervenes to make Abraham's name great and to rename him Abraham. And though it seems so contradictory to what we've already looked at in mankind ridiculously attempting to make their name great, the point here is not that Abraham is a great man, but because God is going to use him as an example of himself as a great God and how he graciously bestows blessing to his people. One day, a unification through God's intervention through Jesus Christ will take place. And the blessing of Abraham becomes available to not only Jews, but to all of the names mentioned in that section of Acts that we already read. And that no tongue or language or cultural difference or racial issue or political standpoint or personality interests or hobbies will get in a way of God being able to bestow his gracious blessing of being called his child. And that not only Abraham and his family would be blessed by God and be called children of God, but Galatians chapter 3 tells us that we are the seed of Abraham and that we have been provided the blessing of God. And so I think in this way we can reevaluate that if God is sovereignly in control, the kinds of interruptions that happen in our lives should not only reignite our intentions, but consider how good it is that God intervenes in our lives. Consider some of these reasons why we need the interruption of God in our lives. Firstly, because only God can provide the path by which we can finally reject sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 says, Now we have received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And in this kind of way, Paul is telling us as the church right now, that we've been provided the tools of God's intervention within our very hearts through his Holy Spirit. That his very being and presence is informing us that our natural intentions are wrong, but his intentions are right. And we might know that all things are good for us and that we should worship him and praise him and obey the directives that he has given us and proved good through his gracious character through history. Secondly, we can trust that the intervention of God, because only God can intervene in the lives of those whom we love and desire to know Christ as well. That God doesn't just intervene for us, but he intervenes for the ones we love. I've been thinking about this because I've been thinking about parenting a lot. Most of you who I've met at Cornerstone Bible Church are parents because of the nature of how I've been introduced to this church. And because of that, at least for me, 
I've been able to think about parenting through seeing many of your examples and considering the kind of godly parent I should be. I've been thankful to be at a church in which there's faithful parents loving their children, that I can watch their faithful example as a witness to me. It's helpful for me because, though not yet, I also desire to be a parent, and I desire to have children. And so it makes it a more personal relationship when I've been charged with the youth of this church and understanding the intentions that parents would have to bring up children to be godly and faithful citizens of this country and members of future churches. But the hardest thing, I think, about parenting is the fact that nobody can convert their loved ones. And no one can make their child perfect. We can't make our families perfect, and we can't be a perfect witness to them. And we can't intercede in such a way that we would be the ones procuring salvation for them or for anyone. But the beauty of what God is saying is that his plan is unstoppable and his intervention is inevitable in the hearts of those who call upon him. And the encouragement that he gives us is that he has given us the ability to call upon him and he's given us the ability to be faithful examples for him. And he's also been able to grant us peace and rest that must be so needed in parenting. And the promise that he's given us is that his intervention is available. And we can trust that if we call on the name of the Lord, we can be saved. And we can encourage others that we love that if they call on the name of the Lord, that God would intervene for them as well. And finally, the intervention of God is good in the understanding that he intervenes to make his own name great because only the name of God can save. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If you don't know Christ, this is the truth. Every single one of us were at Babel. Every single one of us desires to make a name for ourselves. The consequences of sin are impeding upon the perfect design of a holy and righteous God. And because every moment of every day in our sin we desire to be God ourselves, we are condemned before a holy and righteous God who must punish evil. But through the intervention of God and the provision of Christ, through his perfect righteousness and perfect life that we need to stand before the Father, and the punishment for sin that we should take for all the sins we've already committed were put upon Christ who could suffer the wrath of God that we deserved and could not take, but he took on our behalf, simply so that we might be called children of God. And this is the gospel truth that saves and that we get a small glimpse of in the story of Babel. I want to end this with a picture of how that was possible for one such person, a man named Mitsuo Fushida. He's one of my favorite people I've been able to read about. He was a Japanese naval officer who led the Pearl Harbor attack in Hawaii so many years ago. And for years, he had zero bitterness or frustration with his decision to lead that charge. 
even through the intervention of multiple other warlike atrocities that befell his country and that his country committed against other countries as the entire world was engulfed in war. Even the intervention of being part of the cleanup crew for the nuclear bomb that fell on Hiroshima didn't seem to be enough to intervene in his life and show him the evils of man. But as it gave him consideration, he received a tract from a man at a railway station. It was an American prisoner of the Japanese called Jacob de Sager. And he had become a Christian even after being interned and being brutalized by his captors. He immediately forgave them and intervened and wrote this track as a way that he may point others towards the glories of Christ. A couple of years later, Fushida wrote this. The many men that I had killed had been slaughtered in the name of patriotism because I did not understand how the love of Christ wishes to implant within every heart. Right at that moment, I read that prayer, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. I seemed to meet Jesus for the first time, and I understood the meaning of his death as a substitute for my wickedness, and so in prayer I requested him to forgive my sins and change me from a bitter, disillusioned ex-pilot into a well-balanced Christian with purpose in living. That date, April 14th, 1950, is the day I became a new person, and my complete view of life was changed by the intervention of Christ. This blessing is not reserved for anyone. And it's offered for you today, regardless of what you've done or how you are living now. And if you would turn to Christ, he would intervene on your behalf before the Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the ability to know your word and for the intervention that you have provided for us. We know that life is troublesome and this world has fallen and that we are attacked at both ends, both by our own heart's wickedness and by the fallenness of this world and the sin of others impeding on our lives and interrupting us and putting us in places that we do not want to be. But Lord, your plans are unthwartable and your purpose is sure. And there is no chance that your worshipers will worship you in spirit and in truth. You did not send Christ as a means by which people would be saved only, but a guarantee that they shall be saved, that you came for your own, and that the opportunity to love you and worship you is ever before us and is available for us. Lord, let that thought transform our lives and inform our intentions and our directives that we may worship you rightly that we would desire for your name alone to be praised and we would be thankful for the opportunity we have to be called children of God. And we pray all this in your righteous and marvelous name. Amen.